1: Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox. I am your social worker with a microphone. And you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Frederick Lane. Frederick is the author of Cyber Traps for Educators. Author, attorney, and educational consultant, Frederick Lane announces the release of his timely new book, Cyber Traps for Educators. A much needed resource for teachers, school administrators, and parents on the legal risks teachers face from the use and misuse of electronic devices. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Fred.
2: Well, thank you, Catherine. It's good to be here.
1: Great to have you here. So you are an attorney, graduate of Amherst College, Boston College Law School. Uh, your website is Frederick Lane.com, if listeners want more information about you and the book and what we've been, will be talking about on the show. So, let's kind of see, what is the issue? What's the problem? Why'd you write the book, Cyber Traps for Educators? What are the cyber traps? I mean, this is a whole new thing, obviously, since the advent of the Internet. Uh, there's, I guess what you're saying is there's all kinds of trouble that teachers can get into, uh, on the Net, having to do with their connectedness with or their students.
2: No, that's absolutely correct, Catherine. This book is actually a um, a sequel, if you will, to a book I wrote three years ago called Cyber Traps for the Young. And I wrote that book based on my experience as a parent and a school board member up in Burlington, Vermont. And one of the things that that I had come to realize was that we were seeing a new issue arising with kids that they could get into new kinds of trouble, really, as a result of social media, mobile devices, and so forth. And for the first time, really, we were starting to run into a situation where kids could be much more the perpetrator than the victim of online behavior. And so what I was trying to do with Cyber Traps for the Young was to educate parents about those risks. During the course of my research for that book, unfortunately, I I came to the realization that teachers, because they interact with kids so often, are also on the front lines of these cyber traps. And so this book is really aimed at teachers, school administrators, school boards, and it's designed to help them understand what kinds of risks teachers face and what they can do to minimize the risks uh, in the classroom and outside of the classroom.
1: All right, so, so what would co- you say what could we start off? What's the biggest risk for teachers both inside the classroom and outside the classroom? I guess teachers and administrators, but what, what what's the the, the, the the most I guess risky kind of behavior they can engage in that can get them into trouble?
2: Well it covers really a wide range and I think Catherine we could answer that question in a couple of different ways. You know, is it the most common risk? Maybe the most common risk I would say is Um, You know, getting distracted and having, um, you know, inappropriate uh, websites that they're visiting on their computers and things like that, Uh, we all get distracted online, as I'm sure you're aware. But in terms of the most severe risk and the one, unfortunately, that gets the largest and most prominent headlines is inappropriate um, relationships with students. And one of the things that I'm really trying to help people understand, I think, is that Um, mobile devices in particular contribute to this problem because one of the things that we are slowly beginning to realize is that when kids get their own mobile device, and that's happening at a younger and younger age, it's not just that they're getting this device to access the web, but they're actually getting their own phone line. And so now it's possible for people to communicate directly with Children without any awareness um, on the part of parents, you know, unless they're really vigilant. And so, one of the things that we see is is basically a. Well, slip I want to just
1: even you say unless they're really vigilant. I just kind of want to hone in on this just for one second because sure. even if they're really vigilant, how can you how can you know whether someone's calling your kid if they're at school or at the gym or at a friend's house? I mean. There isn't any way to be able to, to know that that people are are connecting with them, is there? Are there?
2: Well, there isn't in real time, right? You're absolutely correct. And if parents give their children a cell phone because they want to get in touch with them, one of the risks that goes along with that, obviously, is that other people can as well. You know, certainly parents can do things like pay attention to the, you know, recent calls. They can, you know, make a point of looking at phone records. They can... Um, periodically take a look at what apps kids have installed. And I think that those are all reasonable and important things to do. You know, hopefully you do them less and less as kids get older and they demonstrate maturity and, and responsibility. But, you know, I I feel that parents oftentimes are reluctant to exercise that kind of supervision because obviously they're concerned about privacy. They're very, very busy themselves. Um, Kids obviously resent it. So it's a delicate balance to strike. But unfortunately, the reality is that difficult and painful situations do arise, and all of the adults in a child's life need to be vigilant and responsible for what's going on.
1: All right, so now let's and okay, we're talking about, that could be anybody who may be inappropriately connecting with your child or your kid, but now what about teachers? So how does this fit into the picture? How are, do they get involved in this kind of inappropriate behavior with their students or the potential for doing that?
2: I think that, that that's a great question. I think we really need to um, begin with the the premise that teachers are spending a lot of time with kids, um, you know, in some cases, they're having more direct interaction with kids on a daily basis than even parents are sometimes. And so, you know, it's, it's not surprising that there would be the potential for this. The scenario that I, I write about and I think arises most commonly is that you have kids communicating via uh, one method or another, you know, particularly using mobile devices with teachers, And what will tend to happen, based on the research that I've done, is that these conversations will begin innocently enough, maybe a discussion of homework or something like that, and depending on the time and the circumstances of the people involved, the conversation segues sometimes very rapidly into inappropriate areas, you know, given the fact that you're dealing with an adult and a child. so.
1: Give us an example. Inappropriate. What are specifically inappropriate? What are those areas? What would be inappropriate? I mean, you're discussing homework, you're discussing, that's fine. Uh, Then what happens?
2: Well, here's a good example, Catherine. You've got a situation where, you know, a student is asking about homework. It may be later at night. You know, I know we have a 17-year-old at home (laughs) ourselves, and, you know, he tends to do his homework, you know, 10, 30, 11, 12 at night. And so in the scenario that um most commonly arises, there'll be some interaction between the student and the teacher. And based on whatever issues the student or the teacher is facing, you know, they may then start talking about more personal things. And so all of a sudden now you've gone from, you know, what page is the homework on to, you know, I'm having a really bad time, my parents slash my wife doesn't understand me. Um, I'm not happy at home. And then given the fact that so many of these mobile devices are are smart devices with cameras attached, the research I've done makes it clear that teachers and students will sometimes start exchanging photos. Um, That's a prelude to, you know, or part of flirtation. And then all too often it winds up in in a physical relationship.
1: Does it happen more, let's say, in, let's say oh, in a high school situation where you have maybe a twenty five year old teacher and a eighteen year old student or a seventeen year old student? Yeah, and actually I don't think that
2: you know, it 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 I don't think that there's any particular age um that is dominant. I think one of the things that we do see um uh, fairly frequently is um both younger teachers who are just coming out of uh their teaching programs And then I would say older teachers who are, if you will, seduced by the technology as much by the students. So, yes, you definitely run into students who are 22, 23, excuse me, teachers who are 22, 23, 24 years old. And they're really in the same mindset and using devices in the same way that their, you know, 16, 17-year-old students are using them. But, unfortunately, we also run into situations where you have teachers who are in the mid-40s, mid-50s. Maybe they've got some kind of midlife crisis going on. And because technology makes this communication much easier and, in many cases, more secret, these things go farther and faster than they should.
1: Uh, Fred, you're talking – I mean, you're an attorney. And so, I mean, you specifically, in, in the book, Cyber Traps for Educators um, – Uh, you're discussing this kind of wide range of potential legal traps for teachers, and you include, and I want to ask you what this means uh, or explain it to our uh, listeners, like cyber loafing, um, (laughs) viewing inappropriate content in schools. um, There's some very specific kinds of things, I guess, that are considered illegal on the books that are not acceptable, that teachers can't do with students. Can we kind of go through some of those? Sure.
2: Um, what you're specifically referring to, Catherine, um, the cyber loafing actually is a a concept that um, I talked a little bit about in an earlier book called The Naked Employee back in two thousand three, which was about employee privacy in the workplace and what people should or shouldn't do. And basically cyber loafing refers to the idea of using, you know, a workplace computer, a school computer, even their own devices to do things online instead of the work that they're supposed to be doing. So a couple of the cases that I talk about involve people who were supposed to be teaching, but instead were shopping on eBay, doing banking, uh, things like that. And one particular form of cyber loafing that can be very problematic in the schools, of course, is if you have um, someone who is actually accessing adult materials um, on a school computer, classroom computer, something like that, and, you know, while these things are not technically illegal, they are a violation of the individual's, um, you know, work expectations or their contract with the school. So, you know, those are things that are um, of a concern for a school district from an employment point of view, not necessarily from a legal point of view. Now, obviously, if you get into a situation, and I talk a little bit about this as well, where teachers are looking for or viewing child pornography, then they're unequivocally breaking the law, and that can be very, very serious. And obviously, it raises concerns for people who deal with children throughout the day. You know, is that going to uh, lead to some other kind of situation that involves you know harm to a child that they're actually in charge
1: of? Well, okay, given those examples, um, can you give us a specific, a specific example of where this has happened and how it was handled legally? Um,
2: well, sure. I mean, throughout the book,
1: <laughs> this is what we were chatting
2: about a little bit earlier. One of the problems is that you run into so many examples. But within, you know, in Cyber Traps for Educators, there are a couple of examples that I talk about about teachers who have been caught up in, for instance, child pornography stings. It's happened in just about every state in the United States. And what will end up happening is that they'll be detected by law enforcement as people who are downloading child pornography. In some cases they're using school computers when they do it. In other instances they're using their home computers. And when they get caught up in this kind of sting, what ends up happening is that a search warrant is issued either for the school computer, which Obviously can be very disruptive or for their home computer and police will go in and do an investigation and a computer forensics exam to see what kind of material is on their computers. The examples that I talk about with respect to cyber loafing, accessing inappropriate adult materials, uh, those kinds of things, those tend to be handled, um, on the basis of school district policy as opposed to law enforcement. You know, for instance, when I was on the school board in Burlington, uh... we had an art teacher who viewed adult websites in the evening after all of the students had gone home and he wasn't aware of the fact that that those <laughs> the websites that he was viewing were flagged by the IT department of the school district which just about every teacher in the country should assume is the case and so he was disciplined by the superintendent of the district and by the state licensing board but it wasn't a legal matter because nothing he was looking at was illegal,
1: mm-hmm. so it was more a, a, an ethical matter, given the context of his job or his profession. Or,
2: right, exactly. That's that's exactly right. So the question really is then, you know, where is that line drawn? And you will find generally that it, at least in terms of adult materials, it really has to do with whether or not children are involved. That's the. That's the only real legal issue in terms of viewing material online. Now, a lot of the, the more specific legal problems that I talk about involve, you know, what kind of relationship does the teacher have with the student? Is he or she sharing inappropriate images? Um, is he or she having a sexual relationship with a student? And one of the things that I talked about in Cyber Traps for the Young that that parents really need to be aware of is that, if their children are creating um, new selfies of themselves, which is an increasingly serious problem around the country, it's not simply the risk that those materials will disappear into cyberspace and be irretrievable, but there's actually a legal problem there insofar as the students themselves are creating child pornography. And so what ends up happening is that they're exposing themselves to legal risk and, you know, to the extent that a teacher is encouraging that, um, the teacher is also potentially liable as well.
1: All of this seems like such, and I'm using the word sticky, some of it, you know, some of <laughs> it is, is like very obvious when you're talking about child pornography, which is illegal. But then you get into these other areas that become a little bit more fuzzy, don't they? Like what be, at what point does, does this uh, relationship online with your teacher be you know, kind of I segue or morph into something that's inappropriate. Right. Like, yeah. I mean, those would that, seem to me, and there would be more cases of that than, than the other. I don't know. I mean, but, um, and how well, do you? Well,
2: I think, yeah. right, Catherine, I think that that's a very important question. And I, you know, I want to underscore that, that this book is both tech and teacher positive. I have teachers in my family that, that love what they do that, that do a wonderful job with students. You know, there was, there are more than three million teachers in the United States and and even at its most extreme, you're only talking a few percent of those teachers actually getting into trouble. So this is a serious issue, but I don't think it's an epidemic. It's just something that school boards and districts need to be aware of. And I what think does the a teacher
1: other teacher do Fred, for instance, let's say the teacher has you know their intentions are are, are, are good and they're mm-hmm. you, con, uh, connected, talking to their students about specific homework assignments, whatever's appropriate. And then the right. teacher, uh, during one call, for instance, feels like, hey, this student is is this is she, he or she has kind of gone over the line in terms of what they're sharing with me. Uh, something right. maybe about their boyfriend or their girlfriend or their sex life what 's the teacher supposed to do? I mean, I know you talk about tips and stuff in the book, like do they immediately report this to the principal or report the student, or how do you know how do they handle it? perhaps it 's just the first time, but they know that this you know it 's not appropriate behavior
2: that 's true and i I think that we 've got a couple of different issues there catherine I, I think number one, um, I think teachers need to be very, very careful about using. Um, forms of communication that go directly to the student without any supervision or transparency with other people. For for example, you know, one of the things that I, I feel very strongly about is that students and teachers should not be friends on Facebook. That that's not an appropriate form of interaction for the for the two relationships or the or the two individuals. That being said, if the school sets up a Facebook page for a class, for instance, or even for a a grade of some kind, then that doesn't seem to me to be a problem because everybody can see the communication. You know, similarly, if a teacher is texting back and forth with a student, it's less, it's less favorable or less wise, if you will, for that to be directly from the teacher to the student and back, it would make more sense for the parents to be involved in that, doing a group message of some kind. Now, I understand, and I was I was going to talk a little bit about this, that, that teachers are often confidants for students, and that's an important role for teachers to play. I think that the point that I'm trying to make is that technology makes it easier for those conversations to slide into something that's potentially dangerous. And so teachers need to be very, very aware of that potential. And if they think that something is beginning to cross the line, then they should bring another adult in, in some capacity as a check. You know, whether that's talking to the student's parents or maybe there's a school counselor that they could go to. Or yes, in some cases I would say, sit down with the principal and say, look, this this interaction has occurred and I'm uncomfortable with where the student is going. And I think immediately you've created a very different dynamic where it doesn't necessarily have to be confrontational, but it's not surreptitious.
1: Now, you've created an appropriate boundary. All I'm, as you're talking, I'm thinking about uh, perhaps it's similar to, you know, students come in and talk to their teachers about problems in school, in the teacher's office, but taking the student out for dinner and <laughs> drinks is not an appropriate place to talk about it. <laughs> you know, you put
2: your finger exactly on it, Catherine. That's, that's a good way to put it. Yeah.
1: It's a, I mean, it's a whole, has it created a whole new area of, of law? I mean, obviously it must. I mean, because you're yeah. talking about what's legal, what's not legal, what's ethical, you know, all of those kinds of things. I mean, is this something they teach or are beginning to teach in law school?
2: Well, you know, I don't think that they really are. Um, I think that they will eventually catch up, and actually, one of the reasons that I'm working on this particular project is that the teacher licensing and teacher certification groups are beginning to focus on this and incorporate it into a growing movement for teacher ethics. And so, I think we start with the educational profession first, and then we look at the legal profession, and quite honestly... You know, one of the books I'm looking to do down the road is cyber traps for Lawyers Themselves. So, you know, hopefully this can be extended to the legal profession as well. But I think, honestly, um, you know, the real goal here is to educate people about the fact that these risks exist and then figure out logical ways for us to move forward. Part of the problem is that all of this technology is so new and kids have grabbed onto it so quickly that adults really are catching up in a lot of ways.
1: Well, oh, I, so I, hope... I kind of this brings me to my next question, because at some point, uh, I mean, I don't know how old you are, but at some point the teachers are the kids of yesterday, and they were the kids who were brought up on all this, you know, uh, in cyberspace. So they are not not knowledgeable about,
2: <laughs> <laughs> you,
1: you know what I'm saying? They're, 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 I know 14 exactly. fourteen-year-olds, ten years—the fourteen-year-olds of today are going to be twenty-four. They're going to be the teachers, and they've well, had sure. a whole new, rela- have a very different relationship with, uh, you know, with the internet, with with all of this, than the older teachers have. So that has to change things too, as the demographics change. I guess is what I'm trying to say—the age demographics.
2: Yes, it does, and and you know, when you think about it, you know, Facebook became publicly available in 2006. Um, so that's you know, nine years ago. If you subtract, you know, nine from the average teacher graduate of you know, twenty three or so, you know, they were fourteen when Facebook became available, which meant that they could sign up. So your your incoming wave of teachers are all people who grew up with Facebook, with smartphones, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that this was the point that I was getting at is that in terms of helping these teachers understand the potential risks of using mobile devices with their students, you have to change their mindset because they've grown up using this stuff. And they haven't really necessarily absorbed the fact that by becoming a teacher, they've taken on this new role that has boundaries that need to be observed. And that's an important part of becoming a professional.
1: Yeah, I mean, it seems to me, you know, and I, this is a little bit off from the teacher thing, but it always surprises me. I get a lot of texts and emails from people at work, uh, maybe I shouldn't even be saying it on the radio, but they who are, who are using their email addresses at work to, you know, socialize, and uh, I never quite know how to respond. I don't want to respond because knowing that it's coming from some kind of a, well, it could be a government institution, whatever it is, but... People continue to do that. Uh, yeah, um, yeah.
2: It's, it's really startling. And, the, and this, is, this is one of the categories that I talk about it's, is the use of technology within the workplace by teachers because, you know, increasingly every teacher has a computer at their desk. Even if they don't, they can bring their own smartphone. And there is a real risk that you can create a hostile work environment for your coworkers, if you forward things like that, and I think you know whether or not you know whatever your kind of political bent or social bent or anything like that, I think the important thing to keep in mind is that it's the standards are different when you're in the workplace. That you create potential problems not just for yourself but for your employer if you're acting in a way that creates hostility, creates you know fear, um, mocks somebody in one way or another. So. Again, a lot of this has to do, I think, Catherine, with the idea of digital um, etiquette. How do we behave with these devices? You know, how do we teach people to um, act responsibly, act maturely? And that's, I think, an ongoing challenge for all of
1: us. I would agree with you. I think, and also, I think you have to start doing that in elementary school. That has to be part (laughs) of the curriculum.
2: <laughs> well it's funny you say that because in about two weeks i'm going up to um, do some lectures in the uh, Alaskan town of Valdez, and i'm in the process of creating a forty five minute presentation for uh elementary school students you know for i 'm going to do one section k to two and then another uh three to five and it's a real challenge to figure out how to interpret these general concepts. You know, in a way that little kids can understand.
1: Yeah, but is this the first time that you've actually dealt with with that on that level with the little kids, with the you know starting with kindergarten?
2: Yeah, it's it's a topic I've been researching for a while. I did a lecture out in Arkansas last year for the um, Department of Education on developing a K to twelve. Curriculum, but this will be the first time I put it to the test. So <laughs> we'll see what my reviews are. But, yeah, well, uh, I'd
1: like to go back on your website after you've done that, and maybe you'll have something about it. I'd be really curious to hear, you know, the responses because I think, uh, first of all, I think it's important; it needs to be done. But you know, how to get the whole thing started? We only have about three minutes left, but I have one question to ask you. Just it's your opinion because you are the expert, the writer, the attorney. Yeah. Um, and the author of Cyber Traps for Educators. But I, I know in New York City, in Manhattan, in some of the schools, they've made them actually, students can no longer bring their cell phones into the classroom. They make them, I guess, leave them at the door or not even, they can't even do that. They can't have them on their person when they come to school. Good idea or bad idea?
2: Well, I think actually it's just not a practical idea. And, and to be honest with you, Catherine, um, just, uh, just last month, um, the... Uh, school administration here, under the direction of Mayor de Blasio, announced that they were revoking that policy. So I think as of March 1st, students can bring uh, their their cell phones into the New York schools. Uh, look, honestly, when you look at the, the world we live in and the need for parents to stay in touch with kids, I, I just don't think it's realistic for schools to... Uh, you know, impose an outright ban on devices. That being said, I think that it is totally reasonable for schools to have uh, regulations and rules about how they will be used. I mean, obviously, you don't want them being used to cheat on tests. I mean, this is one of the things I talked about in Cyber Traps for the Young. Uh, you don't want them being used to bully kids, and and we need to educate about all of this. At the same time, I think that, you know, parents do have a reasonable expectation that if something goes wrong or if their plans change, they can get in touch with kids. And and so I think, you know, that's just the realistic uh, outcome of where we are right now. What I do suggest, and I think that, you know, schools have looked at things like this, is the idea of having a basket or cubby holes in front of the classroom where devices go when kids walk into the classroom. And it's similar to the idea that I recommend for parents that there be you know, sort of a family charging center where devices go to sleep. You know, this idea of goodnight cell phone. You know, so the kids aren't actually staying up all night with their cell phones because there's really no compelling need for them to do so.
1: Yeah, so uh, Fred, it's really about limitations and we don't want to get into all or nothing. I, you know, I remember with my <laughs> kids, some of the parents were sort of self-righteous. I, my kids never watch television. I used to think, well, that doesn't seem like that. They're really missing out on,
2: right. uh, <laughs> it, you know, never watching, watching, watching
1: television as opposed to putting some limits on to what you can watch. Um uh, right. but it's sort of, it, I mean, now that's kind of the same kind of thing. It's, it, yeah. yeah. So it all has to do with setting limits. Okay, well, we have, uh, A minute left. So um, I want to mention the book again, obviously, Cyber Traps for Educators, Frederick Lane. He's the expert. You can go to fredericklane.com, and you can buy the book online, Amazon, bookstores everywhere.
2: Yes, that's correct. It's also on Barnes & Noble Nook, and probably by the beginning of next week, you can order a paperback uh, through Amazon CreateSpace.
1: Great. Well, it's been great um, having you on the show today. I learned a lot, and listeners can learn from your book as well. And uh, good luck in Alaska.
2: Well, thank Those you, little Kevin.
1: kids. <laughs> I
2: appreciate the interview.
1: Okay, great. Thanks. Uh, we're going to take a short break right now. I'm Catherine Zock, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zock Show on voiceamericavariety.com and World Talk Radio. We'll be back in a minute.
0: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. If you are interested in real estate in America's largest city or anywhere, be sure to listen for Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. Although our focus is on Manhattan and other real estate markets in and around New York City, we'll have plenty of information that will help you successfully buy, sell, and close a transaction no matter where you are in the world. Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco can be heard every Tuesday at 9 a.m. in New York, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it'll be 50 years from now. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is
3: 866-472-5788.
1: You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. I'm Catherine Zox. Welcome back. Uh, joining me this morning is Jack Schaefer. Uh, he's a psychologist, a professor, and intelligence consultant and a former FBI special agent. Uh, Dr. Schaefer has spent 15 years conducting counterintelligence and counterterrorism investigations and seven years as a behavioral analyst for the FBI's National Security Division's Behavioral Analysis Program. Um, he has a new book. His new book is The Like Switch, an ex-FBI agent's guide, which he is to influencing, attracting, and winning people over. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Jack. Well, thank you. So you are a former, it's kind of like a very, I guess, sexy profession, I, I would call it. It um, kind of sounds very intriguing to be an FBI special agent. Um, counterintelligence, counterterrorism. Um, obviously that's in the minds of all of us today um, and now you've written this book about how we can use some of the skills that you used as a FBI agent to improve our lives is that it so that yeah. improve our in terms of attracting people friends doing well at work uh, in many different kinds of situations um, I, I guess my yeah Go ahead. Uh, so, okay, let's. I just want to first start out with a special agent. Well, you're not doing that anymore. Special agent, uh, FBI, national security. How do they train you? You must have had, ex- obviously, you have extensive training um, in terms of how how to, and how does that fit in to the book in terms of like for us as um, individuals to use those skills to improve our work situations, our relationships, uh, as you say, winning people over, influencing people. As a uh,
3: behavioral analyst, we spend a lot of time just watching people, looking at their behaviors, and uh, it boils down to basically trying to get people to like us, because if people like us, then they're more apt to tell us their secrets, which will put them in jail perhaps for a long time. Or we want to convince them to change sides and, and work for us. And uh, the like switch covers all the human relationships across cultures, across age groups, and uh, we've identified certain verbal and nonverbal cues that normal people do when they enter into normal relationships. and uh, it's a great conversion from the work over to the human side, because we were forced, you know, as being FBI behavioral analysts, to kind of thin-slice the uh, human relationship.
1: So what did you do exactly, I mean, as a behavioral analyst? I mean, obviously we think of, you know, CSI, uh, all those television shows, Criminal Minds. Uh, Is is that what it's actually like? Uh, It
3: could be a little bit different than what we see on TV, Uh, what we do is we get uh, information about the person, as much information as we can, and then we sit down and we analyze that behavior, and then we develop strategies that will help us uh, uh, achieve the goals that we want to achieve for that particular case.
1: So there are very specific Mm -hmm. techniques about how you get information from, it could be, what, terrorists or people who are, yeah. Mm -hmm. okay, terrorist
3: suspects, people that you want to recruit
1: how does that work with you know i just recently took a a pleasure trip i guess you would call it and just got back from uh, southeast asia and i i'm always observing how the uh you know when you go through security how different it is in different countries and it always seems that in our country it seems somewhat role, too relaxed i guess is what i would say you know that it seems like the the people who are doing the security you know they just seem to be kind of light and lively and and When you go to some of these other countries, maybe particularly some of them communist countries, they're much stricter. It really seems as if they're concentrating on you as you're going through security. Can you just comment on that?
3: Well, you know, the the problem with security in America is we're so used to having unlimited freedoms. And whenever you you try to curtail or or take freedoms away from people, they, they get upset. Yet, at the same time, They don't want planes blowing up and terrorists getting on planes and hurting people. So what I think we need to do and and what TSA is doing is they're walking a very fine line between keeping America's freedoms available to all Americans and also protecting Americans. So it's difficult to uh, go one way or the other without, uh, without problems.
1: Yeah, so it's difficult, and I can, you kind of see that, I guess, or at least I feel that I have some sense of it when I'm traveling around, and I do travel a lot. So what are some of the things that you can do to protect people's rights and privileges and freedoms, but at the same time use some of those techniques that you've described in order to make sure that you call out the people who are the criminals or the terrorists?
3: Well, it, it, you can look for basic behaviors, uh, One of the basic things is terrorists and criminals are not happy people. And happy people do not give off what what I refer to as friend signals. And they look for threats. So if you're in a a line, in in a TSA line, waiting to go through security, and you see somebody that's not issuing these friend signals, they look anxious, they're looking around, and the closer they get to the checkpoint, the more nervous they get then uh, there's an indication that there's uh, that, that there's a problem. Now, the other thing that comes in to, into play is what if you have a nervous traveler, someone that doesn't like to travel? So then you look for, they're, they're still going to be nervous. So as they approach the threat point, they're going to become less and, and, and less nervous, but the person who's up to no good is going to become more and more nervous because that threat, Point or the checkpoint presents a threat to them where they're going to get caught. And once they get through the through the checkpoint, say you got somebody that's running late for an, an airplane, they're anxious in line, and I've been that way. I said, come on, hurry up, hurry up, let me get going. I'm, I'm very anxious to get through it. But the closer I get to the checkpoint, the, the better I feel about myself, because that's good, I'm going to make my plane. And that becomes less and less of a threat. Or the other person is, becomes more and more of a threat. And then when you get to the... To the uh, waiting area, uh, most people will just relax and say, good, I made my plane. And most terrorists now are faced with an additional threat point, which is getting on the plane. So that's why their behavior is going to be more nervous. Well, those are the kinds of things you look for. It's more... You're talking about
1: nervous. Can we be more specific about that? I mean, I, uh, that's a great example. So, let's say the person who has, whose intentions are not good, once they get to the waiting area, they're sitting down, um, what they're looking around, can we be more specific or yeah, what they, what they what would the, tend to do? Like, we would the, tend to, you get out your iPad or your iPhone and you start talking or eating or all, going to the bathroom, all that kind of stuff. Um, but that's not true of somebody who has other motives, you know.
3: Right. We, we label those things fight-flight signals. So when you go into a fight-flight response, and that's uh, in anticipation of some threat, so when you go into a fight-flight response, as, a, as somebody up to no good would, then they're going to be giving off the signs of nervousness, sweating, rubbing of the hands, pacing, walking up and down, uh, checking the watch all the time uh to make sure that uh you know they, they want to dissipate this energy because fight flight creates a lot of energy and uh if you can't run away or fight we have to dissipate that energy. So we we uh do things like rub our hands, uh walk, pace, we sweat, we look around and uh we're constantly vigilant. And those are the kinds of things nonverbally you can pick up. And these things are almost subconscious. I mean, people do these things subconsciously, so we we look at people more from a psychological standpoint than uh, an actual physical standpoint, like you mentioned earlier.
1: Well, what about in an airport? So is there anybody sitting there at airports looking at these people sitting waiting for their flights, I mean, uh, and observing that kind of behavior?
3: Yeah, the TSA and the the flight marshals are constantly observing behavior in the airport. Employees are taught to look for certain behaviors that that indicate uh, a fight fight signal. So and, Jack, and once you talk yeah. to these people, if you approach them and you, you you ask a few questions, you can resolve why they're anxious, why they're pacing, why they're sweating. And typically, if it's a if they're if they're if it's a benign situation, you can figure out based on a few questions whether they're a threat or not.
1: So, Jack, airport. Personnel, not just TSA people, are also trained to look for this kind of behavior.
3: Yes, because they're the ones that are facing the the the, the flying public.
1: What about uh, once you get on a plane? What about the the flight attendants? Are they also trained in the same way that you're talking about? Yeah, they're they're trained to handle all
3: situations that that arise.
1: So well, that's encouraging
3: because that's what they're there for. They're not there to hand out cookies and, and, and soda and coffee. They're there for your safety.
0: So yeah, that's
3: their th- primary goal is to is to be safe, and, and they go over different emergency situations. So as, what as, kind as of well emergency as, as,
1: do, you, do you train, you know, taking, um, you know, what, what you're talking about, and, of course, what were some of these skills that when one reads your book, you can also learn some of these skills, but uh, um, what specific kinds of training programs to, say, flight attendants have, and I assume they have that on an on a ongoing basis? I mean, do you train people like that?
3: Well, I'm, I don't really want to discuss specific training because okay. then we're, we're revealing methods and technologies, and then we're taking the edge that we have away from us. And if you take that psychological edge away from us, now we have to go and, and do more physical security, which that's one thing we, Amer- as Americans, don't like so it's best we leave that alone.
1: All right, we'll leave that alone and we'll get into we'll get into the specifics of the book um because you are taking some of those skills and teaching us how to use them so that we can take control over our lives in a better way. So there are some there are some specific skills how to win over people and and sort of to be able to accomplish what you want to accomplish um in everyday life, I guess you would call it. Um so why do we know the, the like switch? Why attracting and winning people over? Um, why do we want to do that? Well, because, you know, we're, we're communal beings.
3: We, we As humans, we need to be with other people. We, we're not meant to be isolated. And so what our brains do is constantly scan the environment, particularly humans that are around us, for friend or foe signals. And uh, when we see the friend signals, our brain t- has a tendency to ignore those so that we don't really know that we're issuing friend signals and receiving friend signals. The only time our brain really takes note is if it's a faux signal, and that tells the brain, you better be alert for a possible threat.
1: But specifically, so now, friend signals, and you mentioned big three friend signals. What are they? I mean, what, um, what are the friend signals?
3: Well, the, the, the first of the big three is the eyebrow flash, and that's a quick up-and-down movement of the eyebrows, and it lasts about a sixth, sixth of a second, and it's a long-term signal that tells the person you're approaching that you're not a threat. So if you're five, you typically five, six feet away from a person that's approaching you, if you look at their eyebrows, you'll notice a quick up-and-down movement of the eyes, and then you subconsciously will issue a, an eyebrow flash back, To them to say I'm not a threat either so we don't have to you know get ready to fight each other
1: so So we're talking about what you describe it as the likability quotient when do we use this why You know what how does this fit into the context of our everyday life and and this is interesting because once I I tell people about the
3: eyebrow flash they'll come back to me and they say you know I I didn't realize it. I I give eyebrow flashes all the time and I didn't realize I, I see people giving me eyebrow flashes. So it's just a a nonverbal way to say we're not a threat to each other. And it's kind of a subconscious, you know, gesture. All these uh, signals are kind of subconscious.
1: But how are we using that to our advantage? So Give give us an example. Like in a work situation, like if you're giving like a a nonverbal threat with your eyebrows to your boss, that's not a good thing because you want your boss to like you and to approve of you. And so...
3: Well, whenever whenever I I go into situations where I'm going to meet another person, I'm I'm going to to make sure that I issue an eyebrow flash, a head tilt, and a smile because I want to predispose that person to like me before I open my mouth. Because a lot of times if you don't issue these these friend signals, uh, then people are going to look at you and say, you know, I I don't like that person, I don't like you, but I, I really don't know why. But instinctively you say there's there's a problem there and that's probably because you haven't been issuing these friend signals and you know that happens a lot with with people from big cities uh, i call it the urban scowl we walk around in a big city and there's a lot of predators in a big city we have to guard ourselves against these predators so what we do is we don't smile we don't eyebrow flash we don't look at people we don't hit, tilt our heads we look straight ahead, we talk like we got something to say. We walk like we have somewhere to go, and the predators see that and say he's not as that person is not as vulnerable as somebody who is issuing friend signals so so the,
1: go ahead no, I was going to say so there's a place for it, obviously, you know you have to protect yourself in a big city, uh, but if you're trying to win over the boss or you meet somebody for the first time and you're trying to establish a relationship, a first date, uh, you want them to like you. So Yeah, and yeah. I'll, I'll
3: tell you a kind of a funny story. When I met my wife, I'm from the south side of Chicago, and I, I didn't know I had my urban scowl, and she was from the suburbs. So I went out to meet her and her friends, and all her friends says, I don't like, I don't like Jack because he, he looks mean. He looks like he's going to bite my head off. He looks like he's not approachable. And when my wife told me all those things, I said, well, I'm, I'm none of those things. She says, I know. I don't know why they're, they're telling me that. And then I, you know, finally realized I have an urban scowl that I'm so used to carrying with me in the city that when I get out of that environment, people think that I'm not approachable, I'm not friendly, and I'll bite their head off, which is exactly what I want them to think in the city, you know, when, when I'm faced with predators, but certainly not with, with uh, a person I want to date. So you have to be aware of not only your signals, but aware of what the other person is telling you, so you so can you have monitor. to be
1: aware of all these nonverbal cues, uh, as you say, the other that the other person's giving off, and also that you're giving off. Um, okay, so what are some of the other ones? You talk about the the friendship formula, um, how, and you describe them as for factors that impact the success or failure of a relationship. Let's talk about those. What is the friendship formula? What are those factors?
3: All relationships
1: that you have past, present, and and you're going to have in the
3: future are based on four basic elements. And the first one is proximity. You have to have proximity with the person you want to have a relationship with, of course, either physically or uh, on the Internet, virtual proximity. And when you're proximal to somebody, what tends to happen is you may not even have to talk to that person. You could share the same space, be in the same room, be aware of each other, and that predisposes you to like one another just by being and existing in the same place with somebody. So you need that proximity or you have no relationship. The second thing is you have to have frequency with that person. In other words, you have to frequently be in proximity with that person, but that's not necessarily enough. You need to have duration, because the, the longer time we spend with people, the more chances we have to influence them and uh, to understand where they're coming from and, and, and share ideas. And the last thing, probably the most important thing, is the intensity of your relationship. And those are the, the nonverbal and verbal cues that you can use to intensify a relationship so you you put the combination uh, of that together, kind of like in an algebraic formula, and then you can start adjusting the variables. And what's kind of neat about this is is uh, I use that to, to assess relationships that I have with people, and couples can do that. Are we spending enough? Say we're together all the time, but are we there frequently together? Maybe we're together and and we're frequently together, but we don't have enough time with each other. Or maybe we have the first three, proximity, frequency, and duration, but there's no intensity to that relationship. So in order to fix the relationship, you can increase the intensity in this case. And that, that will, mm-hmm. you can get, develop a closer relationship. Say there's lots of, of intensity, but you don't get to see that person very frequently. So you're going to have to increase the frequency. Say you see that person, you know, 10 minutes every day, but you have to increase that duration to increase the relationship so you can evaluate relationships and you could also develop relationships that way so the first thing you want to do to develop a relationship is be in proximity with the person
1: So and then you issue
3: friend signals at a distance and then your frequency and duration and intensity increases and so does your relationship
1: but the quality of relationships are different let's say you're describing this in terms of your relationship with your your spouse or your partner, and you want it to be a very close, intimate relationship. So the balance would be different than, say, you want a relationship with uh, your teacher. Oh, um, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Well, so. the, the intensity, of course, with my spouse, there's going to be proximity, high frequency, high duration, high intensity. With my instructor, what I, if I was a student, what I'd like, you know, you have proximity, but you're not going to have very much frequency. You're not going to have very much duration, and you're not going to have very much intensity because it's it's a casual relationship. And you can tell when relationships, as a professor, some students, you know, they come in and they want to have a a, a, a relationship other than a professor-student relationship. They say, can I be your friend? No, because, you know, there's a line between professor and student, and you can adjust that by saying, yeah, we can be together, but we're not going to be very frequent when we're together, and the duration isn't going to be very long, and there's going to be little intensity. So I can control that relationship consciously.
1: So it's interesting. So you always have to be monitoring that kind of, or I guess be aware of that in terms of those the, the proximity, frequency, duration, and intensity—kind of to monitor the quality of your relationship—is it where you want it to be, and is it appropriate? Like you're talking about, you know, student professor, um, which is different, obviously, than your partner, and there are other relationships also that that are different. So that's kind of key, I guess, right? Those are that that friendship formula.
3: Yeah, and well, you, you know, know, it comes down to this: it it takes work to develop develop a good relationship. And if you understand the fundamentals of all relationships, then you can consciously figure out what's wrong with your relationship, and then you can consciously figure out how to fix it. So a lot of people, if they're not aware of how relationships are built, how can you fix it if you don't know about the working pieces in that relationship?
1: Yeah, I guess well, we all need to kind of, well, we need to read your book and kind of go back to school on this to, to figure this out. I mean, there's also you talk about, I think we just have time for kind of one more of of, of examples of, of how to do this, how to maintain these relationships, uh, breaking the anger cycle. Can you talk a little bit about that before we have to say goodbye? Yeah,
3: sure. Uh, you're going to face angry people throughout your life, and a lot of times what we do is – we, you know, we get into this death spiral of angry, you're angry, I'm angry, and we're not thinking, and then we, we tend to, uh, disintegrate the relationship. But, uh, one way to handle anger is using an empathic statement. If somebody comes up to me and they're angry, I'm gonna listen to what they're angry about, and then I'm gonna use parallel language, and I'm gonna mirror back to them what they just said. And what that does is it it keeps the focus on the other person, and the other person says to themselves, you know what, I'm being heard, I'm being understood. And uh, the way you construct an empathic statement is you put so you in front of your statement because a lot of people say, I know how you feel, and the first thing that you say is, no, you don't because you're not me. So, So you keeps the focus on the other person. And then once somebody understands, like, wow, somebody's listening to me, then what happens is they have a tendency to vent more of their anger. So when when you see the signs of the ending of that venting, which is a deep breath, a sigh, of the, a sigh or a shoulder drop, then you construct another empathic statement, and then they vent, vent, vent. And as soon as the anger is vented, there's, they, they be, they're done venting, and you can see that very clearly. They, they show the again the the shoulder drop and the sigh. And that's when you want to introduce a presumptive statement. In other words, you want to, you know, uh, you know t- direct them on a course of action that they have a very difficult time not, uh, not uh, uh, agreeing with.
1: So this reduces the frustration. That's a great technique. And there are a lot of other techniques we have to say goodbye now, but in the book, uh, and the, so I want to mention the book the t- again, the like Switch, the Like Switch, an ex-FBI agent's guide to influencing, attracting, and winning people over. Jack Schaefer, psychologist, professor, intelligence consultant, and former FBI special agent. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning.
3: Okay, you're welcome.
1: Yeah, great talking to you. Um, You can buy his book online, Amazon.com, and bookstores everywhere. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week. We'll see you next Wednesday.
3: We hope you've enjoyed today's episode
0: of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel.